Section 4 of Police. This is LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Police by Robert W. Chambers. The Third Eye, Part 2. There was scarcely sufficient breeze of a city character to bring Kemper to Stingraki. But he got out his sweeps when I hailed him and came in at a lively clip, anchoring alongside of our boat and leaping ashore with that unnecessary dash and abundance which women find pleasing. Glancing sideways at my waitress through my spectacles, I found her looking into a small hand mirror and patting her hair with one slim and suntanned hand. When Professor Kimper landed on the coral, he shot a curious look at Grew and then came striding across the reef to me. Hello, Smithy, he said, holding out his hand. Here I am, you see? Now, what's up? Just then, Evelyn Gray got up from her seat beside the fire, and Kemper turned and gazed at her with every symptom of unfeigned approbation. I introduced him. Evelyn Gray seemed a trifle indifferent. A good-looking man doesn't last long with a clever woman. I smiled to myself, polishing my spectacles gleefully. Yet... I had no idea why I was smiling. We three people turned and walked towards the comb of the reef. A solitary palm represented the island's vegetation, except, of course, for the water-growing mangroves. I asked Miss Gray to precede us and wait for us under the palm, and she went forward in the light-footed way of hers, which, to any non-scientific man, might have been a trifle disturbing. It had no effect upon me, besides. I was looking at Gru, who had gone to the fire and was evidently preparing to fry our evening meal of fish and rice. I didn't like to have him cook, but I wasn't going to do it myself, and my pretty waitress didn't know how to cook anything more complicated than beans. We had no beans. Kemper said to me, Why on earth did you bring a waitress? Not to wait on tables, I replied amused. I'll explain her later. Meanwhile, I merely want to say that you need not remain with this expedition if you don't want to. It's optional with you. That's a funny thing to say. No, not funny. Sad. The truth is that if I fail, I'll be driven into obscurity by the ridicule of my brother scientists the world over. I had to tell them at the Bronx what I was going after. Every man connected with the society attempted to dissuade me, saying that the whole thing was absurd and that my reputation would suffer if I engaged in such a ridicule quest. So when you hear what that girl and I are after out here in the semi-tropics, and when you are in possession of the only evidence I have to justify my credulity, if you want to go home, go. Because I don't wish to risk your reputation as a scientist unless you choose to risk it yourself. He regarded me curiously. Then his eyes strayed towards the palm tree which Evelyn Gray was now approaching. All right, he said briefly. Let's hear what's up. So we moved forward to rejoin the girl, who had already seated herself under the tree. She looked very attractive in her neat cuffs, tiny cap, and pink print gown as we approached her. Why does she dress that way? asked Kemper uneasily. Economy. She desires to use up the habiliments of a service which there will be no necessity for her to re-enter if this expedition proves successful. Oh, but Smithy. What? Was it moral to bring a waitress? Perfectly, 
I replied sharply. Science know no sex. I don't understand how a waitress can be scientific, he muttered. And there seems to be no question about her possessing plenty of sex. If that girl's conclusions are warranted, I interrupted coldly. She is a most intelligent and clever person. I think they are warranted. If you don't, you may go home as soon as you like. I glanced at him. He was smiling at her with that strained politeness which alters the natural expression of men and the imminence of a conversation with a new and pretty woman. I often wonder what particular combination of facial muscles are brought into play when that politely receptive expression transforms the normal and masculine features into a fixed simper. When Kemper and I had seated ourselves, I calmly cut short the small talk in which he was already indulging, and to which, I am sorry to say, my pretty waitress was beginning to respond. I had scarcely thought it of her, but that's neither here nor there, and I invited her to recapitulate the circumstances which had resulted in our present foregathering here on this strip of coral in the Atlantic Ocean. She did so very modestly and without embarrassment, stating the case and reviewing the evidence so clearly and so simply that I could see how every word she uttered was not only amazing but also convincing Kemper. When she had ended, he asked a few questions very seriously. Granted, he said, that the pituitary gland represents what we assume it represents. How much faith is to be placed in the testimony of a Seminole Indian? A Seminole Indian, she replied, has seldom or never been known to lie, and where a whole tribe testify alike the truth of what they assert cannot be questioned. How did you make them talk? They are sullen, suspicious people, haughty, uncommunicative, seldom even replying to an ordinary question from a white man. They consider me one of them. Why? He asked in surprise. I'll tell you why. It came about through a mere accident. I was a waitress at the hotel. It happened to be my afternoon off, so I went down to the coquina duck to study. I study in my leisure moments because I wish to fit myself for a college examination. Her charming face became serious. She picked up the hem of her apron and continued to plead it slowly and with precision as she talked. There was a seminal named Tiger Tail sitting there, his feet dangling above his moored canoe, evidently waiting for the tide to turn before he went out to spear crayfish. I merely noticed he was sitting there in the sunshine, that's all. And then I opened my mythology book and turned to the story of Argus on which I was reading. And this is what happened. There was a picture of the death of Argus, facing the printed page which I was reading. The well-known picture where Juno is holding the head of the decapitated monster. And I had read scarcely a dozen words in the book before the Seminole besides me leaned over and placed his forefingers squarely upon the head of Argus. Who? He demanded. I looked around good-humouredly and was surprised at the evident excitement of the Indian. They're not excitable, you know. That, said I, is a Greek gentleman named Argus. I suppose he thought I meant a Minorcan, for he nodded. Then, without further comment, he placed his fingers on Juno. Who? He inquired empathically. I said flippantly, Oh, that's only my aunt, Juno. Auntie of you? Yes. She kill, um, three eye? 
Argus had been depicted with three eyes. Yes, I said my aunt Juno had Argus killed. Why kill um? Well, auntie needed his eyes to set in the tails of the peacocks which drew her automobile. So when they cut off the head of Argus, my aunt had the eyes taken out. And that's a picture of how she set them into the peacock. Auntie of you, he repeats it. Certainly, I said gravely. I am direct descendant of the goddess of wisdom. That's why I'm always studying when you see me down on the dock here. You summon all, he said empathically. Summon all? I repeated puzzled. You summon all, auntie summon all, you summon all. Why, tiger tail? Summon all hunt three eye long time, hundred, hundred year, hunt, um, three eye, kill, um, three eye. You say that for hundreds of years the Seminole have hunted a creature with three eyes? Sure. Hunt. Um. Now. Now? Sure. But, Tiger Tail, if the legends of your people tell you that the Seminole hunted a creature with three eyes hundreds of years ago, certainly no such three-eyed creature remain today. Some. What? Where? Black Bayou. Do you mean to tell me that a living creature with three eyes still inhabit the forests of Black Bayou? Sure, me see. Um, me kill, um, three-eye man. You have killed a man who had three eyes? Sure. A man? With three eyes? Sure. The pretty waitress, excitedly engrossed in her story, was unconsciously acting out the thrilling scene of her dialogue with the Indian, even imitating his voice and gestures. And Kemper and I listened and watched her breathlessly, fascinated by her life and supple grace as well as by the astounding story she was so frankly unfolding with the consummate artlessness of a natural actress. She turned her flushed face to us. I made up my mind, she said. That Tiger Tail story was worth investigating. It was perfectly easy for me to secure corroboration. Because that Seminole went back to his Everglade camp and told every one of his people that I was a white Seminole because my ancestors also hunted the three-eyed men and nobody except a Seminole could know that such a thing as a three-eyed man existed. So the next afternoon off, I embarked in Tiger Tail's canoe and he took me to his camp. And there, I talked to his people, men and women, questioning, listening, putting this and that together trying to discover some foundation for their persistent statement concerning men still living in the jungle of Black Bayou, who had three eyes instead of two. All told the same story. All asserted that since the time their record ran, the Seminoles had hunted and slain every three-eyed man they could catch, and that as long as the Seminoles had lived in the Everglade, the three-eyed men had lived in the forest beyond Black Bayou. She paused. Dramatically cooling her cheeks in her palm, and looking from Kemper to me with eyes made starry by excitement. And what do you think? She continued, under her breath. To prove that they said they brought for my inspection a skull, and then two more skulls like the first one. Every skull had been painted with Spanish red, the coarse black hair still stuck to the skull, and behind just over where the pituitary gland is situated was a hollow, bony orbit unmistakably the socket of a third eye. W where are those skulls? demanded Kemper, in a voice not entirely under control. 
They wouldn't part with one of them. I tried every possible persuasion on my own responsibility. And even before I communicated with Mr. Smith, turning towards me, I offered them $20,000 for a single skull, staking my word of honor that the Bronx Museum would pay that sum. It was useless. Not only do the Seminole refuse to part with one of those skulls, but I have also learned that I am the first person with a white skin who has ever heard of their existence. So profoundly have these red men of the Everglades guarded their secret through centuries. After a silence, Kemper, rather pale, remarked, This is a most astonishing business, Miss Gray. What do you think about this? I demanded. Is it not worthwhile for us to explore Black Bayou? He nodded in a dazed sort of way, but his gaze remained riveted on the girl. Presently, he said, Why does Miss Gray go? She turned in surprise. Why am I going? But it is my discovery, my contribution to science, isn't it? Certainly. Certainly. We exclaimed warmly and in unison, and Kemper added, I was only thinking of the dangers and hardships. Smith and I could do the actual work. Oh, she cried in a quick protest. I wouldn't miss one moment of the excitement, one pain, one pang. I love it. It would simply break my heart not to share every chance, hazard, danger of this expedition. Every atom of hope, excitement, despair, uncertainty, and the ultimate success, the unsurpassable thrill of exhilaration, and the final instance of triumph. She sprang to her feet in a flash of uncontrollable enthusiasm and stood there, aglow with courage and resolution, making a highly agreeable picture in her apron and cuffs, the sea wind fluttering the bright tendrils of her hair under her dainty cap. We got to our feet much impressed and now absolutely convinced that there did exist, somewhere, descendants of prehistoric men in whom the third eye, placed in the back of the head, for purpose of defensive observation, had not become obsolete and reduced to the traces which we know only as the pituitary body or pituitary gland. Kemper and I, of course, aware that in the insect world, the ocelli served the same purpose that the degenerate pituitary body once served in the occiput of men. End of section 4 Recording by Isam